Hey guys, welcome to Ruth, our last week. Um, this is our 10th week, and we're going to do today Ruth 4, 13 through 22, the blending in of the Gentiles. And let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for Ruth. We thank you for the redemptive story of it. Lord, it's the story of our own lives, how you have redeemed us from the pit of hell, Lord. And we just thank you for our salvation. We just ask right now that you would quiet our hearts and just still us. Help us to hear your word, Lord. And more than that, help us to um, take it in and apply it to our lives and that we would be just a changed people, that they would know we are Christians by our love, Lord, and by our actions. And Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, we're going to open up with Ruth. We're going to read it. Um, Ruth four thirteen through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. The climax to the narrative is brief, but it's full of meaning. The idyllic conclusion was reached with Ruth lifting, being lifted out of obscurity into a happy union with Boaz, the mighty man of wealth and character, a true rags-to-riches, poverty-to-plenty story right smack in the pages of Holy Writ. How so very God. Marriage. God-given conception and the longed-for heir were all mentioned in a mere few words. Ruth had been barren in Moab for the entire period of her marriage to Malon. Now God rewarded her faithful obedience and virtuous character, as well as Boaz's honorable life. The Most High smiled upon the marriage and allowed her to conceive, giving them a son. Children certainly are a reward from him. Psalms tells us in 127.3, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. This conclusion of the narrative contrasts beautifully with the introduction in 1, 1 through 5. It was a deep sorrow of Naomi which turned to radiant joy. It was an emptiness of Naomi giving way to fullness and with Ruth. The women of Bethlehem who had witnessed Naomi's emptiness when she returned now praised God that she had received a kinsman redeemer. Had Naomi not been past the time of childbearing, she might have been the very one at the feet of Boaz that night on the threshing floor instead of Ruth. The women knew this and thus spoke of Boaz as the kinsman redeemer of Naomi, as surely as if she had gone there. 
They blessed Boaz with a blessing similar to that of the elders. They asked that Boaz be famous in Israel, a request that God granted. The book of Ruth is filled with benedictions and blessings of Israel's people. Prayer to God by the elders attended the marriage in 411, and praise to him attended the birth of the child in 14 and 15. Remember as well, Boaz had prayed that this pious convert, that Ruth, might receive a full reward for her courage, for her perseverance from, God, from the God of Israel, that she would be blessed by him, under whose wings she had come to take refuge. And now he had become an instrument of that kindness, which was an answer to his prayer and helped him make his own words true. Naomi was far from being forgotten, and now she becomes center stage. The women predicted that Boaz would care for her by renewing her life and giving her security in her old age. She no longer had to worry about what she was going to eat or who would care for her. Naomi became principal share in these new joys. Ruth, whom Naomi had not thought of mentioning when she returned to Bethlehem empty, was now declared by the women to have loved Naomi dearly and was of more value to her than seven sons. Seven sons symbolize the supreme blessing that could come to a Hebrew family. The bonds of love proved stronger than those of nature. So here there was a daughter-in-law better than a child of her own. The women named the child Obed, which means worshiper, as well as servant. It is also stated as a servant who worships. This could be in remembrance of the meanness and poverty of Ruth or in prospect of his being hereafter a servant and very useful to his grandmother. Naomi became the child's Obed's nurse. Oftentimes, grandmothers are the fondest. This may have been a form, formal act of adoption. She, the empty one, was now full. The bitter one was now blessed. Naomi had a son. Actually, a son in Hebrew often means descendant. In time, God's providential purpose became clear. Obed became the grandfather of King David, which, of course, is the line of our Lord Jesus. I suppose the biggest takeaway from this little book of Ruth is God's providential care, which permeates its entirety. The seemingly ordinary events of life presented in Ruth, the travels, the marriages, the deaths, the harvestings, the eating, the sleeping, and the purchasing of lands all serve to reveal the guiding activity of the sovereign Lord, which he still does today with his children. God, nothing takes him, nothing is chance, and nothing is happenstance. God wove the thread of Ruth's life most intricately into the web of history of his people. I love that. In spite of all appearances to the contrary, the faithful God had been about his business on Ruth's and Naomi's behalf, as he always is on ours. Believers should also be about his business. Remember what Jesus said in John five seventeen. Jesus said to them, My Father is always working and to, to this very day, and I too am working. And John 9, 4 says, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. 
The rewards of responsible living are always the sweet fruit of God's abundant grace and cannot be overstated. There's nothing sweeter than to stand firm in God's will, mature and fully assured. We are the biggest losers when we choose to go our own way and neglect our God-given responsibilities. Character always counts in God's eyes, and God never misses a thing. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. When in doubt of the way, just simply do the next right thing. Just like Ruth and Naomi. Just like Ruth. She had to get up and go find food for them to eat. The next right thing. We are to keep our accounts short with the Lord. When you fall, which you will, turn, repent, turn, which means turn the other direction. Ask for forgiveness and turn and go the other direction. Don't stay there. Don't stay there wallowing in the pig pen. Turning from sin in true repentance. We are not to remain wallowing and, we're, and we are to keep our focus on Jesus. God will take care of the results. You don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about the end result. We just have to worry about character and being faithful. Remember Paul's words in Colossians. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. And in Romans 12, when we were tempted to take matters in our own hands, Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I read the following quote by John Bloom to you when we first began our study on Ruth, but I think it would serve us well to hear it again. It refers to God's activity being oftentimes unbeknownst to his servants, more than oftentimes beknownst, which I might add, we can always count on his activity being for our ultimate good. It is of utmost importance that we believe that this in our very core, because we will keep from kicking against the goats we want to be in his will, as I stated earlier, mature and fully assured. We don't want to be out of it. This is, this is to our advantage. Um, and the, and uh, it is of utmost importance that we believe this and, and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit or we would be assuredly all scattered like frightened sheep because that's what sheep do. And we're like sheep or stupid. When fear and terror comes, we scatter and we, we run like roaches when the lights come on. Um, it's what happened to his disciples when the trials and tribulations and just plain old life happens. When Naomi, this is John Bloom, when Naomi arrived in Bethlehem after her sorrowful sojourn in Moab, she could not see a harvest from her tears. It all looked like a tragedy, like vanity and striving after a win. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. That's how it looked. That's how it felt. But that's not how it was. In reality, all of the ups and downs in Naomi's life, the famine, 
the move to Moab, the deaths of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, Ruth's loyalty, Naomi's return at barley harvest, Boaz, and the kinsman who chose not to redeem Ruth. Oh, all of these events played parts in God's plan to redeem millions and weave a Moabite into the royal messianic bloodline. The bigger story of redemption was far bigger than they had imagined. Even though they were in the middle of the story, none of them could see it from their vantage point. We must remember this perspective in our times of desolation, grief, and loss. How things appear to us and how they actually are are rarely the same. Sometimes it looks like and feels like the Almighty is dealing very bitterly with us when all the while He is doing us and many others more good than we could have ever imagined. God's purposes in the lives of His children are always gracious. Always. If they don't look like it, don't trust your perceptions. Trust God's promises. He is always fulfilling his promises. Sometimes in our lives, like Naomi, we believe we have been dealt a bitter hand from our perspective, our very limited vision we have. But God, two wonderful words in Scripture. I love those in Scripture. But God, but God is orchestrating this, even this, into what Paul states in 1 Corinthians, however it is written, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind is conceived, but God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. I don't know about you, but if I'm picking what is good for my life, then it's probably going to feel good, look good, taste good, smell good, and be visibly good to anyone who sees it. This is Logan Wolfram. But the truth is, even some of the things that have looked bad from the outside have turned out to be good for me. Because while the currency of God's goodness looks different from my own, it is infinitely, infinitely more valuable. Hard things make us dig deep within ourselves to find strength we didn't even know we had. Loss teaches us to appreciate blessings that surround us. And while I don't want to minimize the depth of any pain and the years it can take to overcome the brokenness we experience in this hard life, there is good to be found, even in the hard and even through the bad. As we embrace a curious faith, we exchange the currency of our control for the wealth of God's possibility. In well, I'm just going to put it anywhere. Robert Morgan's All in All. He writes, and this is a great book, if y'all don't have it. It's a daily devotional. He writes, if you're perplexed, well, he starts with Mark fourteen thirty six, And he said, I have a father. All things are possible for you. All things. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but what you will. If you're perplexed by the mystery of unanswered prayer, you're in good company. Some earnest prayers in the Bible are left unanswered or were answered with a no. Remember Abraham's plea that Ishmael become the son of promise? 
Elijah's prayer for death, or Paul's thrice-offered plea for healing from a thorn in his flesh. The greatest unanswered prayer in Scripture is the one Jesus offered in Gethsemane. He began by acknowledging that the Heavenly Father has the power to do whatever he wishes. All things are possible for you. Then came his poignant request, Take this cup away from me. But Jesus was willing for the Father to say no to his entreaty. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. When the Lord answers our earnest request with a no, it's because he has a wiser plan, a broader perspective, and a higher aim for our good. In one of her lesser-known hymns, Fanny Crosby wrote of this, God does not give me all I ask, nor answer as I pray, but oh, my cup is brimming o'er with blessings day by day. How oft the joy I thought withheld delights my longing eyes, and so I thank him for my heart, for what his love denies. Uh, oh, that song, that country music song, oh, I thank God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> Sometimes we don't even know what to ask, or we ask a mess because we ask for our own pleasures or whatever. And God answers us for what is best. All his, all his prayers are answered for what is best for our lives. In this small book of Ruth, we have the founding of the family within that nation into which the Savior would be born. He had a far, far greater plan than, than what Ruth or Naomi or Boaz could have ever imagined. Ruth is brought in among the ancestors of David and Christ, which, of course, was her greatest honor. Boaz was the descendant of Rahab, which you can remember as a harlot, the prostitute from Jericho. Thus, David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabitess, and his great-grandfather, Boaz, was part Canaanite. The chosen family within the chosen nation thus had a Canaanite and Moabite blood pumping through its veins. How like God, who loves the whole world, that none should perish, but all to come to repentance. It is fitting that from this bloodline would come the Messiah, for all nations, as Jesus came to redeem both Jew and Gentile alike, a good name, character, is rather to be chosen than riches, and Ruth's character was stellar. Proverbs tells us, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. George Matheson writes, In the soul of Jesus, the wedding bells of Ruth and Boaz are rung once more. Here again, Moab and Israel meet together. In the heart of the Son of Man, the Gentile stands side by side with the Jew as the recipient of a common divine fatherhood. Rahab and Ruth became part of God's promise and his plan, not by birth, but by their faith in and their practical commitment to God and his people, the same way in which people from all nations still share in God's eternal promises. It was a field near Bethlehem that Ruth gleaned. Hundreds of years later, also in a field near Bethlehem, angels announced the birth of Ruth's descendant, Jesus. To startled shepherds, only God can fully orchestrate such things as this. From here on out, the Old Testament centers mainly around the family line of David, and the New Testament begins with a genealogy that begins with Abraham 
and ends via Boaz and Ruth and via David with Jesus, who is called Christ. The genealogy in Ruth 4, 17 through 22 may have been one of the many reasons why the book of Ruth was written. Let us be assured, Roger Killian writes, that faithful and diligent service is rewarded by God. But may we realize that words without action lead to poverty, both materially and spiritually. And just a side note on obedience, what does God desire from his children? One, an obedience that flows from faith in him. And two, an obedience that flows from love for him. Three, is an obedience that flows from wholehearted devotion and a willing mind towards him. And four, an obedience that flows from a trust in God's commands that they are always for my good and that he always has my best interest at heart. And lastly, an obedience that flows from from the belief that I am totally loved by him. If you had any idea how much he loved you, it changes everything the way you do. Jeremiah tells us, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity, from your sinful nature. Obedience is a matter of the heart. Obedience begins with our relationship with him. We seek him through his word. We apply his tr- the truths learned. We pray and we hide his word in our hearts. We do not forsake the fellowship with other believers. All these things build our faith and our love and our devotion and our trust. As he speaks to us through his word, he reveals truth to us about our hearts that he desires to change through his power and the relinquishment of our wills. As we give them to him, he changes it. That's the truest, that's the biggest miracle he ever does, is to change the human, the leanings of a human heart. Love makes us desire obedience, not rules and regulations. Love makes all labor light. If we believe him, we will obey him. Um, Bogotowski, which my book is totally falling apart, but anyway, you can tell it's, it was in this our family, I guess, for years, and um, but the but the words in here are still just as poignant as ever, and this is um, on March the twentieth. He writes, "Whoever loves and possesses the Lord Jesus finds unspeakably more delight, honor, and riches in Him than in all other things. Then all is willingly denied for His sake." And this denial brings springs from faith. Now, O oh Lord, thou art all the all I need to make me happy, the only inheritance that can supply my every want. And to draw near to thee is my greatest joy. I desire to love thee evermore and to show that love by keeping thy commandments. And I pray that a sweet sense of thy love to me may become my daily portion and my only treasure. Regarding God's word, the rabbis, Rob, Rob Bell says, the rabbis spoke of the text like being a gem with 70 faces, and each time you turn the gem, the light reflects differently, giving you a reflection you have never seen before. 
And so we turn the text again and again and again because we keep seeing things we missed before. When you embrace the text as living and active, when you enter its story, when you keep turning the gem, you never, ever come to an end. Inspired words have a way of getting under our skin and taking on a life of their own. They work on us. You start out reading them, but they end up reading us. Chambers tells us it is the unseen and the spiritual in people that determines the outward and the actual. God requires a disposition toward our own life controlled by four realities. A grateful conviction of whence it came from him. An abiding consciousness of whose it is his. A growing understanding of what it's for him. A perpetual willingness to lay it down. In all four Gospels, he tells us that if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow after me. We are blessed to live in this generation. May this generation be blessed by the way we live. Be careful then, Paul tells us in Ephesians, very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is for your life. In truth, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. By Jonathan Edwards. Let's close in prayer. Father, just thank you for this precious book of Ruth, this redemptive story. Lord, I thank you that for her stellar character. I pray that for all of us, that we would emulate Christ, that we would be conformed to his image. That's what we're here for, Lord, is to leave the aroma of Jesus to everyone we're around instead of the stench of death, Lord. Help us in this so great an endeavor and, and change us from the inside out for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.